Brought to you by Penguin. Crime fiction has to battle against an attitude which regards it as being somehow populist, somehow beneath the dignity of real literary concerns. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthur Nayaka. Here we give authors the opportunity to discuss their inspirations, the stories behind those they present to us, and to give us a glimpse into their writing habits. Each episode, our guest brings with them a selection of objects that have influenced them and their writing, and then we dig a little bit deeper into why. Today, it's the turn of a man whose output is so prolific, it's a wonder he has time to sleep, let alone join us on the podcast. Turning to writing after a respected career in medical law, he has written 21 instalments in the number one ladies' detective agency series, 14 44 Scotland Street novels, more than 20 children's books, and handfuls of other novels, short stories, anthologies, and academic texts. First released in 1998, the number one ladies' detective agency series set in Botswana and featuring the detective Ma Precious Ramotswi has sold over 40 million copies in the English language, has been translated into 46 other languages, has been adapted for the screen by Richard Curtis and Anthony Minghella, as well as being dramatised for audiobooks by the BBC and Penguin Random House. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome to the Penguin podcast the brilliant and prolific Alexander McCall-Smith, who, before anyone accuses me of being overly informal with the great man, has allowed me to call him Sandy. <laughs> Hi, Sandy. No, hello, hello. Thank you very much for the it's invitation. Um, you clearly went into a field of work, Sandy, that's quite formulaic in the sense that it's rule it's law, it's formula, etc. Yeah. Not much scope for the imagination, certainly the imagination you've used to great effect as a successful author. So was there always a sense that this imagination was somehow imprisoned within this very academic world? Well, that's, that's probably right. I mean, I don't feel that I'm in the psychiatrist chair, but uh, your question is uh, is heading in in that direction. I think authors have to write. Uh, authors want to create. That's always there in an in an author's psyche, so to speak. And I was a professor of law, and that would strike many as being the opposite of uh, being a, a novelist. But it's it, it's not necessarily quite that opposite, so to speak, because. The law is about human affairs. And if you read a law report, particularly in a common law jurisdiction where there's often um, a a recital of the facts of the case before the the issues are discussed, uh, you see that this this is all about human nature. It's all about human plans, about human ambitions. It's all about human arguments, about weighing one side against another and and so on. So there's a lot of drama in the law. And in the particular bit of the law that I was, I was professor of medical law, there's obviously a lot of general philosophical issues, bioethical issues, moral issues generally, 
Uh, I also I wrote I wrote on the criminal law and taught criminal law. And criminal law, of course, is all about issues of responsibility, human action, what we mean by particular acts, intent, questions of intention, motive, etc. So that was wasn't necessarily a hundred miles away from uh, from from uh, fiction. Did you have to overcome any innate intellectual snobbery? from being an academic to being a novelist? There is a little bit of that. Um, the academic world, and I spent a very large part of my, my life in the academic world, the academic world can be very snobbish, intellectually snobbish, and uh, it can also find itself quite removed from the real world. I don't think one makes a, a should make too firm a distinction between the academic world and the real world because the two obviously intersect. But certainly there there are academics who are very sniffy about anything that involves talking to the larger public. I mean, curiously enough, and so you will find that. But you will also find that intellectual snobbery in the literary world as well. That's very in the, true. the literary yes. world uh, can be extraordinarily sniffy about anything that actually talks to a large number of people. And so, for example, uh, take uh, crime fiction. Crime fiction has to battle against an attitude which regards it as being somehow populist, somehow beneath the dignity uh, of real literary concerns. And that actually really can be remarkable. Now, obviously, there'll be some very formulaic potboiler type crime crime novels where you know you're just you're you're just following a particular formula and uh, nothing much else. But a lot of crime novels are very rich in their psychological observation and in their setting and their sense of place, and uh, are uh, every bit as weighty as uh, what one might describe as a literary novel. So I think that one has to be quite careful about uh, those distinctions. What was it about Ma Ramotswi mm. that said to you, I can't stop at a short story? Why did you f kind of fall for her in a, in a literary sense? I think it was probably to a very great extent the country Botswana is a very interesting country, and it's a country for which I have very considerable admiration. If you look at its its history, there wasn't much done for Botswana before independence in 1966. It had been rather ignored. And of course, the, what people say, well, there were only eight miles of tarred road and all of that stuff. So, so it, it was neglected. And then when they um, got their independence, they built this place through their own efforts. And I was very, very taken by that. And I was taken also by the moral quality of the, of the place. In the Botswana, uh, Botswana, Botswana had been really very fortunate in, the, in that it, it had really never had any period in which, for example, the rule of law was ignored. It wasn't corrupt. There was a, a, a real antipathy uh, to corruption because uh, corruption had been such a killer in other uh, countries in sub-Saharan Africa, but not in Botswana. And I liked the people and I liked the place. And I wanted, I found I wanted to continue this conversation with, uh, with it, 
with the country in a sense, and and with Mara Motswe who stood for for the, for that. Um, so I found that there was. I wanted to say more about this place, which I considered really rather special. What is your reaction to a certain type of some would regard pernicious cultural warrior who would suggest that you can only write about what you know, who you are, where you're from. Well, I would I would say I would say that I can see I can see the point. You know, I can un- I understand the issues involved I- involved in that. But I think the difficulty with that is that if we as writers just wrote about our personal experience fiction would be would be pretty pretty grim and and limited and you would end up really uh, just gazing at your own navel and i think that writers should be encouraged to engage with other cultures um now i think that you you have to be careful uh in that you could misunderstand another culture and so I think you'd have to be particularly careful if you were writing critically, uh, if you were criticizing somebody else's society. I would say, you know, make sure of your your facts, and 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 indeed, sometimes uh, criticism from outside uh, just touches raw nerves and is too sensitive, and so one would one would forbear from getting involved. But. When I write about, about, about Botswana, I write in a, in a spirit of admiration, uh, and I've always said that. Um, what would I see of you in Ma Ramotswe, the way she interacts well, with the world? Probably uh, I agree with her on most issues. Uh, curious coincidence, a very curious no. coincidence. I know, I know. Uh, it seems very, very difficult to imagine why this would be the case. But uh, I do, I do actually agree with uh, agree with Mara Matsui. Uh, obviously, when an author writes about um, about anything, of course, he or she is going to be very tempted to express a personal view of the world. And I think that all authors do that. I think authors give themselves away, as you know, every third sentence you can you can tell what their their concerns are, what their their worldview is. Particularly when you spend a very long time with a character, as I have done with her, uh, you've got to you've got to like her. I like her. Uh, she's very wise. I admire her. She's aspirational in a sense. I'm flawed, as we all are. Maramatsui isn't really, as far as I can make out. Maramatsui is 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 a wonderful woman. She's very charitable. She's very forgiving. So a lot of it is, I suppose, me describing something that I would aspire to if I were trying to be <laughs> trying to be being good. Having interviewed so many authors, Sandy, where do you stand on the idea that they, in some way, take control over you? Because some authors say, no, you're always in control because it's ultimately your yeah. brain. Mm-hmm. But then some mm-hmm. others say there's a point at which they almost, so you are end up questioning yourself mm-hmm. and say, well, would they really do that? I don't think they would mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Where are you on that spectrum, well, I, as it were? 
I think that's I think that's a terribly interesting question that you 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 raise there because I think a, a lot of fiction uh, comes from the subconscious mind. I don't think that's a particularly novel insight, but I think that that probably is the case. Uh, that the subconscious mind is always interrogating the world and asking what if questions about the world and speculating about the world. And when people say that the characters take over, I think that is what is happening, is that a subconscious part of the mind is expressing itself. Now, that is done without necessarily um, conscious cogitation on the author's part. So the author doesn't think, what is this character going to say? How am I going to deal with this situation? It just comes from within. And um, that, I think, is, is, is uh, something that uh, I've certainly uh, experienced and that I will find myself writing a, a passage and a character will say something that I hadn't anticipated would be said or an event will occur which I hadn't anticipated so ultimately, it's all from the mind of the author, but it's a lot of it's from the subconscious mind of the author, as opposed to the deliberative part of the of of the brain. That's a, a fantastic, eloquent way of describing it. Um, let's go to your first object, um, Sandy, right. and that is the a venerable maker of notebooks. Yes, let's talk about Smythe's these notebooks of yeah. yours. Tell me, how many of these notebooks do you have? I've probably got about um, 30 to 40, something like that. Some of them are by another maker, a moleskin notebooks, which, of course, have, been very, have a very famous literary track record. But the Smithson ones are the ones that I, I particularly like. I'm not all that methodical when it comes to notebooks, in that I quite like a new notebook and the pristine feel of a, of a virginal notebook where you, you're starting on the first page again. So I don't necessarily fill, fill them up. Some of them are quite full. Others aren't, aren't all that full. Uh, but notebooks are um, a wonderful way of obviously recording one's random thoughts. I put down ideas for stories, for novels. I write quite a bit of poetry, and I often that will be written in one of these notebooks snatches of dialogue, um, notes to myself about what might happen in one of the series, that sort, sort of thing. And it's, it's very enjoyable going back over these notebooks. You're doing a sort of archaeology of, of one's ideas in looking, looking at them, and you'll see where an idea first occurred, how it's changed when you've worked on it, and, and so on. Authors, I think, and I'm sure now that you've probably encountered this with your talking to authors about this, uh, uh, are often somewhat obsessive about their, their conditions. I don't know whether you, yes. whether you particularly, you yourself say that you must have a particular sort of paper or vase of flowers on the desk before you start to write or whatever it happens to be. They're ritualistic is probably the, the, the way of putting it. Of course, nowadays, we, most of us write on, on computers, we write on word processors. So um, the paper is the subsidiary medium. And I think it's a great pity that uh, we're probably having fewer and fewer manuscripts of the old-fashioned sort. And if you look at Proust's manuscripts, they're, they're wonderful. The 
all the crossings out and the transfer of clauses from one place to another and, and so on. That, I suspect, has, it has all gone. It's been electronically obliterated by the final version, which is sent off to the publisher. What do you think I would learn about you from going through your notebooks that I wouldn't from going through your hard drive? <laughs> ah, yes. Well, um, that raises a rather interesting issue about the difference between writing with a pen and writing with a word processor. I remember right at the beginning of word processing, reading an article by somebody talking about this new thing that was coming in, word processing, and uh, this person saying, I can always tell when prose is word processed because it's flabbier. And uh, I thought about that, and I read a book way back called Electric Language, which was by an American philosopher commenting on how word processing was going to change the way we think. And I think it, it has. It's become so easy now to write on the screen, whereas using a pen is more chiseled. And so I do see a difference in, in my prose that I've written in the notebook from the prose that I've written on, on screen. And even more so, there's a totally different voice if I dictate something. I can't dictate very well. I find that if I dictate something, it doesn't sound very good. So uh, the way in which you put the words down, so to speak, can have a major effect on the end result. Indeed. Um, let's move on because we've got a number of objects to get through and they're such yeah. great objects. I want to give them the time they deserve. Uh, wooden carving of two cats. Okay, explain. Discuss, as, a, as an <laughs> right. academic uh, essay yeah. might say. <laughs> well, that's, that's a, it's a rather beautiful carving. It's a panel with two cats on it. And I then had the carving cast in plaster of Paris and then gilded. So I, I had about three or four of them because I wanted to give these to people. And the, the background to it is that I'm a great admirer of the work of George Bain, who was a very great 20th century exponent of Celtic art, of the early Celtic art, you know, with its lovely whorls and turns, yes, uh, which is really very, very beautiful. George Bain published a book called Celtic Art in which he uh, revived those techniques and showed people how to draw these beautiful pictures, which one would, for example, see in the Book of Kells. And uh, he had an illustration in a book of poetry by Douglas Young, uh, which I've always rather liked. And there's a, a picture there, a little ink drawing of two cats with a mouse and a bird by their side. And so it's a picture of harmony and tolerance and gentleness, which really chimes with the peaceable kingdom theme that you get in, in art. And so it's an expression of that. So I got a famous wood sculptor in, in Scotland to, to carve this for me. And it chimed with, with a story that I wrote about the early Scottish saints, a total fiction about this um, family of saints who lived in the southwest of Scotland. Because the early Scottish saints, actually, the interesting thing was that they, you had the saint, 
And then his wife would be a saint as well. And the children were saints. They were all called saints. And not only were they all saints, but they had a saintly cat. And the cat was so saintly that the birds knew this cat was no threat. And the birds rode on the cat's back. And later on, I um, collaborated with a composer friend of mine, and we did a piece uh, called St. Ninian's Gift, uh, which was all about these early Scottish saints. And there's a lovely song in it, uh, which is called Holy Cat. And the singers talk about the holy cat. And there's a line, when, when this cat died, the mice come to the funeral and they weep tiny tears for their feline friend. So uh, that's what that object is about. It's about how we could live together. I'm going to use the word rapacious here because... I feel as though that you're someone who has a rapacious hunger for culture because your reference points just in talking about essentially carved cats has taken us <laughs> quite a journey. And I wonder yeah. if you if you do have a kind of rapacious need to experience different cultures. I mean, we've talked about Botswana and Swaziland, mm, etc. Mm, mm. Is that you? Yes, I, I, th I think I am very interested in what is going on elsewhere, as well as in under my, under my nose, so to speak. I love the odd corners. I love the odd things that you find if you go somewhere that you're unfamiliar with. I, I love finding finding the odd stories associated with that place, and of course you you can, and of course everywhere you go, there's a whole hinterland of meaning and association and dramas behind everything that you uh, everything that you see your next object is um is clearly one that means a lot to you and has great sentimental value tell us about this old stamp album sandy well that's a stamp a stamp album which i inherited it it had belonged to my mother and uh, i didn't really pay very much attention to it but it ended up in my in my hands. I wasn't a great stamp collector as a boy, but um, there's nothing terribly special in it. I mean, there aren't high-value stamps or anything of that sort, but they're such beautiful little objects, aren't they? These, these lovely old stamps from territories which may, in many cases, no longer exist. There's a rather interesting book which was published 10, 15 years ago called Whatever Happened to Tanganyika, uh, which is about, uh, is about precisely about this, that people, philatelists, may wonder what happened to these various countries that they, they have stamps from. There's a great deal of constitutional political history that you can gather from looking at that. But also there's the little, little pictures of the past. They show objects that uh, were important at the time, projects, you know, the may stamp may be a picture of a famous dam which has just been built or any of these things. You get stamps uh, commemorating trips to the moon or whatever. So there's there's so much history in, in stamps. But aesthetically I find them very interesting. I love I, I love them. I love looking at these these little bits of printed paper. Um, are you by nature a homebody or a nomad? Uh, I, uh, I'm probably inclined to be at home this last year of um, uh, enforced immobility because of the situation with the pandemic has been, from my point of view, 
a productive time. I very much like being in one place uh, for weeks on end. I do like I do like travel, but I I'm not a relentless traveller. And when I travel, I tend not to go and look at the sights. I like to just look at the little corners and try and absorb some of the the feel of a of a place. And Africa, especially, has so many interesting corners. Uh, I remember visiting a dusty old art gallery in Zimbabwe, run by this extraordinary man with long white hair, and and you just everybody has a story, don't they, Sandy? Everybody they do. Has. They do. That's something which I've certainly learnt as a novelist is that not to be embarrassed about asking people what their story is. They can repel you if they don't want to talk. They can indicate. But I love hearing the. I love hearing people's stories, and I think it's a great pity that we've lost the the urge and indeed the art of conversation uh, with strangers. I've recently been at quite a number of literary festivals in in India, which is a country which I I very much uh, enjoy visiting. In India, people are still very happy to have a conversation, and I, I and so you can engage with a stranger, and you can get a a wonderful. A, a wonderful story, uh, and that's that. I think is rather nice. I mean, sometimes, of course, you start a conversation with somebody who's never going to stop, and then you <laughs> you have to make an excuse. <laughs> when you travel around the world and go to literary festivals, what's the most common question that you asked, or the ones that you've just got this? autopilot way of answering because you've been asked so many times the same question. Well, you know, of course, every, everybody says, I mean, the, the usual answer to that question is, where do you get your ideas from? Question which authors all say they dread. Do you change the answer to that mischievously? <laughs> no, no, I did. I did read about one uh, American author who did have uh, his stock answer to that, where do you get your ideas from? And he says, from a mail order company in Kansas that sends them to, <laughs> sends them to me. Uh, but I think uh, people um, feel they're interested in that. And so I think it is a serious question. I had a really curious experience once. It was more a, a, a comment rather than a question that I was asked at, a, at an event. I was an, on tour in the United States and I was signing uh, in um, Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, this woman came up to me with a book for signature. And she looked at me and she said, you know something, you're going to be much more successful posthumously. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a compliment is that? I mean, that's a very... That's a very the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Exactly, I mean, exactly. You know, she wasn't being rude. She was. It was rather an odd thing to say to 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 somebody. <laughs> well, look, you're going to be around for a lot longer. Don't worry about that. Uh, and you have to be because we've got to talk about the typewriter. So certainly don't yes. go anywhere. Don't go anywhere now. No, I don't no, want this no, to happen no. mid podcast. Um, tell us about <clears throat> this old typewriter. It's a beautiful machine. Yeah. Is it something that is a largely decorative now. It is, yes. It, it sits on a shelf in my study, and I don't use it. It does work, but I don't don't use it because it's a, it's a slow way of committing thoughts to paper. Uh, this is a very beautiful one, 
because it's it's an early portable and it folds in over itself. So the the carriage part comes over and covers the keyboard. You can fold it up. And um, these early typewriters were wonderful machines, uh, just as pieces of engineering. I love bits of engineering which are intricate, which are clearly assembled by hand or have to be put together in a way in which a modern instrument of some sort is is molded plastic or, or whatever. And it's rather like a vintage car. If you open the bonnet of a vintage car, you see an engine there with lots of different parts, whereas a modern car, you see a block and bits which just are bolted on and off if, if it goes wrong. So, uh, yes, I, li- I love uh, old type, uh, type se- uh, printing machines, typesetting, um, hot metal typesetting was a wonderful thing. I've got some trays of old type up in the attic. I have a little printing press, which I never really managed to get to work very well. Typewriters, though, I did have a collection of typewriters, of old typewriters, and I loved them as works of, uh, works of art. Yeah, these old these old things are um, are, are wonderful. My favourite poet, W. H. Auden, talks about how he had an old steam engine as a boy. Uh, I forget which poem it's in, but he says, "Love requires an object; anything will do." When I was a boy, I had a steam engine. Uh, thought it every bit as beautiful as you. It's a it's a lovely idea. The the beauty of an old an old machine, an old bit of machinery. Well, look, we're going to speak now uh, generically about something that is a very up-to-date piece of technology, and that's your Alexa-enabled device. And this is for you listening to the Penguin Podcast. Uh, Before we go, don't forget to follow the Penguin Podcast, comment, rate, and most of all, share. And as I said, you can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. So thank you for that. Now, finally, we like to ask our guests always, Sandy, uh, what are you reading at the moment or have read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, Do you get time to even read? I've recently been reading Simon Winchester's book on land, which is a very interesting, uh, interesting book indeed. Simon Winchester writes beautifully about a whole range of subjects, but he's particularly good on what one might describe as uh, geographical subjects. And this is a study of of land and the importance of land and arguments over land and the significance of land. So I've enjoyed that. And then today I just started reading a new book, which, which I've just received, which is about a boxing club in North Belfast. And I had read in the past, I'd read something about this boxing club, uh, which is called the Holy Family Boxing Club. It was a Catholic boxing club which brought Protestants and Catholics together in divided Belfast. And uh, there's a book all about it and about the man who trained these boxers. I never thought that I would end up reading books about boxing, which is not a sport that really interests me. But this is a beautifully written story about people coming together in difficult circumstances and coming together through through a sport. So it's a it's a very strange book for me to have suddenly decided that I want to read, but I'm enjoying it greatly. Very, very yes. interesting. It is. And as have you been, it's been so <laughs> So good to hang out with you, uh, Alexander well, McCall-Smith, today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much indeed. I've, I've enjoyed our conversation greatly. <laughs>